Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Storm from Uncanny X-Men, number 159. And joining us for the discussion is legendary comic book writer Chris Claremont. Welcome, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Very glad to have you on to talk about Storm, who is one of my favorite uh, superhero characters. And this particular issue is one that is a self-contained issue in which Storm fights Dracula, yet its influence has kind of like rippled out. People love the idea of a vampire version of Storm, it seems. Well, I I would look at it, look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Um, it was also one of the first times that Bill Sienkiewicz and I worked together. Mm-hmm which set up an ongoing relationship that's continued to this day in terms of, of telling stories together, although most of our work has moved on from the X team to the New Mutants. But it was also seminal in terms of other characters. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's rare to have a single-issue story start oh wait am i crossing paths they burst in to stevie hunter's apartment Mm -hmm. and everybody's like oh my god you're stevie hunter kitty's going oh the 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 parental divorce was the annual wasn't it yes then this is she's going to meet her parents it's not the divorce yet right because that's i mean she's gonna go spend a few days with her parents instead of the x-men Right, mm-hmm. where she learns, dum 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 dum. Right, what happens next? It was, in this case, it it's just we were going to have a lot of fun, and we've been doing a lot of incredibly intense stuff, and so we took a, it's a one issue call, pause for breath, mm-hmm. and who's the last adversary you'd expect to see the X Men run into? Well, surprise. <laughs> it's it's Dracula, uh, and there's quite a bit about like when Dracula was allowed to be appearing in 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 it, and this is one of the first like integrations of Dracula into the main Marvel superhero side. He had appeared with with Doctor Strange, which was mm-hmm. often its own little side supernatural, but now mm-hmm. he's going to be appearing much more in the you know as a figure uh, with the more mainstream superhero. Well, um, I, I think you could probably take an issue with you really consider the X canon mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose well, it became the core line for for the uh, for for Marvel for for quite a while there. Um, so this issue, X Men number one fifty nine, is titled Night Screams. It was written by you, Chris Claremont, mm-hmm. and had pencils by Bill Sienkiewicz, inks by Bob Wiasek, letters by Wyatt Tom Wiasek. Thank you. I've, I've never been one hundred percent sure on that. Uh, letters by Tom Orzechowski. Well, the joke, of course, is Wiasek. Why not a pole? But boom, boom. Well, now Bob I will never forget that. Those. <laughs> And it had colors by Glennis Ween. And this issue was edited by Louise Jones, who is perhaps more well-known by her married name, Louise Simonson, uh, to, comic, to comics fans, a very significant figure uh, in, in X-Men and, and Marvel, uh, well, in, in the comics industry. And this, as we said, uh, tells a sto- uh, the story of Storm being attacked by Dracula and almost becoming a vampire. And it has a cover date of July 1982. <laughs> Sorry. Long ago in a galaxy far, far away. 
that was just a few months after I was born. Uh, I really didn't mean it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we always uh, we ask people how they came to the story that we're discussing. Obviously, you created the story that we're discussing to, uh, today. For me, uh, I became a fan of the X-Men as the first comic book that I picked up and uh, eventually uh, ended up working on my doctoral dissertation, writing about race and gender in the X-Men comic book. So I read the entire run of Uncanny X-Men, and that's when I uh, first read this particular issue, was doing that, that graduate school research. Um, but I think I was aware of Storm having encountered Dracula because uh, in the 90s, there were a few times where like the references to Storm uh, or vampire versions of Storm from other dimensions uh, were being used by by comic creators. And it's a, it's a, a character that alternate versions of Storm as a vampire having been turned by Dracula still pops up uh, to this day in X-Men comic books. I guess the advantage of a multiverse is that you can do anything to any character within those frames. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were just playing it at the time from the perspective that there's just one Marvel universe, and as with anything else, we we wanted to be able to take characters up to a point and keep the readers in suspense, and then miraculously save the day. You know, I, I, the I think the idea behind with this, the the Dracula issue is basically from the, the, the premise that nobody would see it coming. <laughs> it's like, yes, it was silly. Yes, it was way off the beaten path. But I think, well, I, then and now, the the foundation principle of, this, of the series, of the characters, of the concept, was anything goes. Just because they're technically a superhero team and a superhero book doesn't mean they can't wander into areas of um, magic mm-hmm. bearing in mind that the the first the second um x-men annual was nightcrawler going to hell yes yeah, yeah there's been uh at this point in your run there'd been a lot of merging of the superhero genre with the the big uh, outer space sci-fi ideas right mm-hmm. with lots of the shiar and star jammers mm-hmm. and uh corsair uh but it, i think this is a point where we're going to start to shift and do a little bit more frequently where we're dipping toes into the the supernatural and the horror genre mm-hmm. uh with the x-men is that is that feel right to you yeah i mean now for something completely different mm-hmm. and um it also relates back to Aurora's identification as a perhaps quote-unquote goddess and what that means, which later sort of coalesced into uh, issues that Steve Leo and I did of the New Mutants where they ended up, where the, the kids ended up going back in time and you meet one of her ancestors, Ashake, uh, who is, by all intent, for all intents and purposes, in very ancient Egypt, a goddess, a sorceress, definitely, perhaps a goddess, and um, again, wanting to blur the line, especially where Aurora is concerned, between how we perceive her and how she perceives herself, and perhaps who she really and truly is. Oh, I like that a lot. Um, that. <laughs> Even though it's a it's a one off 
you know, this particular issue with, with Storm is going to be this one-off. It, it really, uh, it, it doesn't just become a side story. Like we learn a lot about Kitty Pride and we learn a lot about Storm. Like we, we are advancing the characters, even as, like you said, we're just doing something completely different to kind of keep the readers, mm-hmm. you know, caught off guard a little as to what kind of story they're going to see. That doesn't mean that it's just fluff. Uh, you know, there, there's long-term character development, even if there is a reset of Storm, you know, not becoming a full vampire at the end of this issue. She resets back to the Storm that we know, but now there's going to be a little bit, you know, well, a, a always, difference that's going to linger. I think with all of them, there is a dark side. And the I think the, the real question I would have if if Storm were to become a vampire, and this is, I think, something that's that's been a bug in my throat for a long, long time is that in any relationship, regardless with whom, would these characters, would any of these characters uh, accept being subordinate? So it's all very well to mm-hmm. for for Vlad to bite Storm and turn her. But that might be the most dangerous thing he'd ever done because <laughs> there's no way she's second fiddle to anyone. I mean, that was, I think, my main, oh, question regarding Aurora's relationship with T'Challa. Um, because when one, is a, when one is a prince or one is a king, one's true love, regardless of how deep and passionate the relationship is there for one functional purpose, to provide the next generation, which automatically risks turning that person into a subordinate character. Um, one of the struggles in the Fantastic Four for, for, gener- for decades has been how to get Sue out from under that bugaboo. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, how how do you balance Aurora and T'Challa when a yes he's got a movie but in terms of publications, she's always outsold him, and she is the, a more, an, at very least, an equal character, even though from Jack and Stan's introduction of him back in the mid-60s, T'Challa is a groundbreaking character, and should be. In this case, you one has to step back and look at how one wishes to relate to Vlad himself, which, you know, I I was reading a lot of the historiography about him, the real life understanding of him versus the fictional presentation of him. And how do you balance the two? Mm -hmm. And um, it creates an interesting challenge in terms of where that would have gone if he'd gotten his way and turned her. Right. Um, you know, it's, I think it's something that all writers like to play with. Mm -hmm. Uh, what was it in the recent past? I guess back in the, I don't, in the, in the teens, Jubilee of all people become a vampire. Yes. Jubilee has, has become a vampire for a time. She got better, (laughs) but, but, uh, it was a little longer term impact there. (laughs) I'm not sure how one gets better from being a vampire because yeah. the technical <laughs> definition is one has to die first mm-hmm. 
which could always create a, I don't know, problem? Yeah, I mean, uh, superhero characters have been getting better from death for a while, but... <laughs> well, I mean, come on. I Since since Gene's resurrection, that whole card has been become a running joke, at least as far as right. my view of the X-Men is concerned. But still, it if you're going to do something that is as primal as playing with Dracula, then it it means stepping back and looking at it in terms of life, death, good, evil, mm-hmm. dark light, uh, who draws the line first and how far. Um, you know, Vlad himself is comes to respect, I think it's in this issue, as, but also in, could be in the annual. She is a worthy adversary. Mm-hmm. And the subtext is, damn, I wish I'd known you when I was alive. Oh, <laughs> I was married and I loved my wife and it wouldn't have mattered. But it's it's a romantic duel as well as a hero villain duel. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately it was, it was designed as a fun issue, a change of pace, something where the reader is hopefully on the edge of their seat for some different reason than Sentinels or uh, Magneto or whomever. Right. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar, why don't I just run through a real brief summary that streamlines <laughs> the, the particular issue. And I think it'll it'll help us launch into some of the themes that you're already uh, starting to, to explore for us. So it begins with the X-Men coming to New York City so that Kitty Pride, who is the youngest member of the team, can go to see her parents. Storm is planning to accompany her to drop her off. Later on, Kitty Pride calls the X-Men and asks to speak to Storm, but Storm has not arrived back. Kitty says that Storm left hours ago and should be there by now. And as readers, we see Storm's body lying in an alley with a wound on her neck. Uh, she's found and rush to a hospital. Several members of the X-Men come to see her and she's recovering very quickly but cannot remember the attack. She leaves the hospital to go and convalesce. At night, she has what she believes are dreams about a figure in the fog coming to her. And during the day, she feels ill and rests. Kitty returns to the X-Men after a time with her parents and is told about Storm's attack. Kitty sees Storm flinch from sunlight and also grimace at her star of David. And Kitty has a theory about what's happening. That night, Dracula comes to Storm again and Kitty phases through the wall and holds up a cross. But this has no effect on Dracula because she is Jewish and does not have faith in the cross. However, when Dracula attacks Kitty, her star of David necklace repels him. Storm and Dracula fly out of the window and Storm calls out for Kitty not to follow her, which she, of course, ignores that. The X-Men listen to Kitty, uh, tell them about what happened, and they track Storm. Wolverine follows her scent to Belvedere Castle in Central Park. The X-Men are attacked by Dracula and struggle to overpower him until Nightcrawler, who is a faithful Christian, makes a cross to repel Dracula. While Dracula is distracted by this, Kitty goes uh, to look for Storm. Storm now has fangs and is in full vampire mode. Kitty begs Storm to try and fight off Dracula's hold on her. Uh, We cut back outside the castle where Dracula has managed to defeat the other X-Men and Storm joins him, but Storm attacks Dracula with a lightning bolt. And when he tries to flee, she uses her weather powers to prevent his escape. Dracula tries to reassert control over Storm and her will wavers before she can again resist his influence. Dracula is awed by her willpower. He says that she is one of the only women he has ever met who would be worthy to be his queen, but to try and force his will on her would deny her the respect that she has earned. So he will no longer try to instill enslave her to his will. He releases his hold on her and Storm returns to the X-Men and thanks Kitty for inspiring her to fight Dracula's thrall. 
Uh, so as you were saying there at the end, uh, yeah, there's so 80s. <laughs> there, <laughs> did you just say it's so 80s? <laughs> well, no, it's just, you are the most powerful woman I've ever met of all the other women I've enslaved. And it's like, excuse me. <laughs> it, it's, he, he's a little bit sexist. He's a little bit, you know, he, but he's a, a person of his time. And that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's, um, I mean, you could draw a further extension of of the relationship in the storm being a black East African could have could create relevances in references in Dracula's head of the Islam of the Muslim armies that that destroyed his country. It's you could go in a whole bunch of different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but as again, Kitty's just the toughest little kid on the block. Uh, yes, Kitty Kitty Pride is, uh, you know, inspires Storm, but it, it's not that she becomes Storm's savior. You know, Storm still has to fight off the thrall. So there is, uh, you know, there's still, you know, this this agency given to Storm. She's not the damsel in distress. No. Yeah. She's basically, she got, she got ambushed, taken by surprise. And in that moment of weakness, Dracula got his hook in her. But once, once she regained her balance, it started back towards a fair fight, and in a fair fight, she wins. Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean he doesn't come back for a second round, which is the annual. But uh, there you go. Um, for you, um, what do you think is is interesting about the combination of the superhero genre and the supernatural or the horror genre that Dracula represents? Well, it's partly it's a way of treating the 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 horror genre with more respect, with trying to, as always to figure out what makes Dracula tick as a character, as a person, as an adversary. Is it the kind of thing where you just view him as a cliche? Mm-hmm. I am. You know, is he is he Christopher Lee? Is he um, oh, um, Hello, Lugosi? No, no, no. <laughs> Lugosi is going way back. No, I was yeah. thinking of um, what's his face who ran, won the Best Actor for Churchill. Oh, um, yeah, I've got, I've, I have his face in my head now, but I can't pull the yeah. name. <laughs> But who played it? Who played the more traditional Dracula presentation of Dracula uh, back in the nineties? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Thank you. Yes. Old reference for an old. Anyway, but boom. It's it's looking at the adversaries uh, as the protagonists on both sides, protagonist antagonist, and trying to find a way that makes them more like people but also more interesting to the readership i mean everyone who's read the book at that time and definitely now has a vision of who how they would handle vampires how they would handle dracula who that person is and it would be nice to find a cool way of defining him visually of looking at him 
of presenting him that would ideally catch the reader by surprise and make them take a second and more focused look at who that person is and perhaps respect him more as an adversary rather than as a cliche. You know, it, again, a question I would ask if I were writing Dracula on a more regular term back then or now is, okay, he's been around, well, I did it in Tomb of Dracula to an extent, but that was defined by Mark, by Marv Wolfen. He's been around, he's been running around the world now for a hundred years. Why does he still look and dress like Bela Lugosi? Would he not try to integrate himself more into contemporary society, perhaps with a certain edge, a fondness for certain colors, a fondness for certain styles, but would he integrate himself more into the overall society to make himself harder to be detected? Or would his standing out from the crowd be a gesture of defiance on his part? I, I, spit on the rules of time, I spit on the rules of space, I spit on the rules of, of evolution. I am unique unto myself. Therefore, you come to my term, you come on my terms, not I on yours. Uh, which, again, if, if I had a more than a single issue, if it had been a, an annual, if I was thinking more interestingly and self-indulgently, I suppose, about it, would that mean bringing Aurora, presenting her, defining her in his uh, 14th century terms, 15th century terms, rather than in 20, 20th or 21st century terms? Mm -hmm. Would it mean, I mean, if I'd had more pages, it would have been fun to see Logan and Dracula coming at one another because while iron might affect him, would adamantium. You know, if if Wolverine stabbed him with his claws, again, iron claws might at least stagger him. Mm -hmm. But adamantium being totally artificial Wakandan stuff might not, which could be the thing that gave Dracula the opportunity to get his fangs into Logan. Now, we, we know that they wouldn't last because Logan would heal himself. Of course, the interesting thing would be, what if they healed him and he came back as a vampire? And then what? <laughs> it's just, again, playing with all these elements. Um, it's just fun. Yeah. Um, so for the character of Storm, how do you... You didn't create Storm, but you ended up defining that character for, yes. uh, you know, really codifying what her personality is and how she's going to interact with the team. If you're going to try and summarize Storm as to like, what is the core of her character? What should the reader know about her? What should be the takeaway that anyone who has an interaction with Storm, if they were going to try and describe her? She is the epitomization of, she's the latest iteration of a bloodline that goes back to the foundation of the human species. She is from that part of Africa where humanity as we know it, homo sapiens as we know it, got their start. 
and the fact that her bloodline encompasses an influence, if not an outright control over the weather, means that our con conception of mutants, our definition of the term or the term itself may be flawed. <laughs> she is either above and beyond that definition or the definition is far more elastic than we considered. But for me, it, it's always been that Aurora, Aurora's family, her bloodline have walked in tandem with humanity from the beginning, that they have been a helping hand along the way. So your vision for Storm would be that she's actually maybe separate from the mutants that are emerging in the 1960s, no, 70s? Not from the mutants per se, mm -hmm. but from, there's a reason why she can lift an Uruhama hammer. <laughs> there's a reason why to my, in my presentation of her, there is, she is more than meets the, the casual eye. Mm -hmm. And the problem is my definitions of these characters are very personal and very specific and over the years have become at odds with traditional ongoing Marvel definitions of these characters. So it's, you know, I, I'll take responsibility for my hundred and 200 issues and everyone else is on their own. But again, this is my vision of who she is mm -hmm. and my vision of how she fits into this, this synergy. Of, well, I think uh, reading it, reading it on the, on the team, there is always kind of an aloofness or a separateness that she has not um, a, you know, that she feels she's better than, but you just feel that there is a, a different, something different, right? Yes, there is something different. One, she's shy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to go back and think about the life she's lived. Um, she had a nice, normal, middle-class life with her, with her mom and dad that came to an end when uh, the bomb went off in Cairo and she was orphaned. So she's, this is now when she's like three and a half. Mm -hmm. So she spends the next 10 years, give or take, as a thief in Cairo. And she's really, really good. But that's the world she knows until the Shadow King comes along and tries to grab her and, and her mentor kicks, out, kicks her out and puts her on the road at the same time as her mutant abilities start to catalyze. So she walks south across East Africa, across the Sahara, heading for Kilimanjaro. And in the process, has an experience which try to remember the last time I referred to it specifically, it's, I've, which I've done in the last year or so. I'm just trying to remember if the, the, the story has been published or not yet. <laughs> right. But a man tried to rape her and she killed him, which is a big deal at any point in a person's life. But when you're a, a barely a teenager, 
that means something. I mean, that has a, a horrible impact, a lasting impact. So she gets to, to Kenya. She sets up shop. And she lives alone. Why does she live alone? Because she's trying to cope with these new abilities of hers. And because her human interactions have not been altogether comfortable. She keeps a distance because she doesn't want to hurt people, but she's also afraid. Um, this advantage being that she doesn't know how to interact with them except from a distance, except from that aloofness. I'm up here uh, 20 meters above your head, controlling the weather. Don't cross me. Okay, okay, good. Oh, why are they bowing? Okay, I guess they, they like me. They treat me with respect. We're cool. She doesn't have any friends until Charlie shows up. And then with his incredible forms of persuasion, which I always consider a, a loaded question when you're dealing with a telepath of his order, he recruits her for the team. But from the very beginning of that time, hinted at in Len's issue, but carried on far more in the giant size, but carried on far more extensively and fundamentally in mine, is that distance which grows out of her shyness to the very point where when the team's in, in uh, well, two moments, she and Jean bond as f best friends. They show up at, in Iron Fist 15, which is John's audition to be our pencil on the X-Men, John Burns. And she comes in looking great and she gets hit in the face with a, a giant bowl of, of uh, not, not cream cheese, but potato salad. And she loses it because she's embarrassed and she doesn't know how to deal with it. And then it goes on a step further in um, when they're on, well, actually that's the second time. The first time is when they're in Ireland and Banshee's holding a, a Kaylee and Kurt's showing off the image inducer and she comes out and she takes off her robe and we see her as Dave Cockrum could only draw her dressed to the nines and looking absolute. And she says, am I pretty? Because for me, for her, this is a big moment. She's never been, I mean, prior to that, we've only seen her in her costume and sort of generic clothes. This is the first time she's trying to look cool. And she doesn't know, how, what if everybody runs away and laughs or cringes or makes fun? What do I do? But she trusts Kurt. And Kurt has the sense enough to respond honestly and says, you're beautiful. And she doesn't know how to deal with that. What, is, what does beautiful mean? Beautiful is a, a, 
is a is a cloud cloudy sky uh it's it's the earth it's the water it's i'm a person what does that mean but she is especially drawn by dave she's drop dead gorgeous but this is the first moment that she's allowed herself to come face to face with a that and be what it means and then dealing with what happens next all around so it's it's an evolution of who these people are as people. And then we come up to this point where she confronts Dracula, but also at this point, she's leader of the X-Men. It's not like Scott's in charge and she's one of the team. She's the boss now. So when he's taking her on, it's it ends up, he's thinking, I'm Dracula, you're cute, my latest, my latest poopsie. And with Aurora, it's like, okay, you caught me by surprise. I'll give you that one. But when we fight now, I'm Storm, and I'm equally as primal and equally mm -hmm. as powerful and equally as godlike as you, if not more so. And this, I'll prove it. Wham. Yeah, when I did the quick summary, I, you know, I just kind of said she, she battles him, but it is a battle through New York City of her like buffeting him with, with wind as he's trying to escape and he cannot get away. Like she is winning right. the physical fight after having thrown off the emotional or mental right. control that he had over her. Well, and also, the, I always keep trying to show people exactly when Storm controls the weather, what that means. And we're talking winds that could go to unimaginable speeds. Um, and I, a line I used much later when she and Emma Frost are going at one another and Emma turns into her gold, her diamond self and basically is, ha ha, you can't touch me. And I was just like, you want to bet? You know, this is a twig. This, you know, this is a little flat, Strip of, of, uh, of <clears throat> wood. I throw to you. Nothing happens because you're made of diamond. But if I get a billion of these little bits of wood, and I throw them at you, constantly, at a hundred miles an hour, two hundred miles an hour, three hundred miles an hour, I'll just keep ramping it up. Sooner or later, I'll find the flaw in your in your diamond and I will shatter you. That's the kind of thing that, you know, she can take the temperature up as high as she wants, down as low as she wants. She can cover you in ice. She can boil the water. It's like, in many re respects, um, she is the embodiment of all the forces that enable Earth to sustain life. You can't get more primal than that. <laughs> and the sub, you know, I, I mean, in a sense, she and Dracula are made for each other as antagonists because he is the personification of life through death, whereas she's the personification of life itself. Don't mess with me. And in this case, life itself wins. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With a butt. 
<laughs> yes. Because you always leave you always leave a little a little bit of open space at the at the bottom of the issue, a window for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Which and, in this case, as we said, has become versions from alternate dimensions of the character popping up in well, many different ones. But but I mean, your your run was famous for having those subplots, you know, those hints of potential future plots that maybe readers would forget about. And then suddenly it becomes, you know, a key thing at a, at a later date. Yeah, uh, my, my basic problem was, I think, over time, I began to view them as my characters, not as Marvel. So I was playing with them in the same way that J.K. Rowling would play with Harry Potter, mm-hmm. uh, or that the George Martin would play with um, Westeros. Um, the more the merrier, and the more different directions I could go in, the more fun it would be. I mean, Wheezy herself is the best exemplar of that because whenever I'd sit there, kind of going, "Ah, what can I do? What can I do?" And she said, "Well." What about this? What about this? What about this? And she just throw out all the loose ends that I'd left. And sooner or later in the conversation, one would, oh, wait, yes. And then I could put that with this and this with that and bingo, we're off in a slightly different, but altogether fun direction. It's, Mm -hmm. it's mixing the stew as enticingly as possible so that each reader will have the full meal guaranteed by that issue, but we'll also be sitting back thinking, oh man, that was really good, but what about this thing? And some, you know, it might be resolved in a couple of issues or a couple of months or a couple of years or not, but it'll always be there. Uh, and, and that's, I, I think, one of the strengths of these kind of long-form storytellings that can just go for years and years is that, you know, the, those beats that, uh, you know, they happen there, they're in print, but but they, they might not be front and center in, in readers' minds or even in storytellers' minds, uh, but but they can be found later on and picked up and said, what, what about this moment? What about, you know, the, this, this thing that was left there? Well, I, uh, it's also a case of, with me anyway, but my... I tried to think in terms of how I can present the story and the character and the moment from a perspective that the reader doesn't see coming. Uh, Too often, writers will take a story and they'll go for the obvious. Um, Sinister being one case, uh, my conception of him is totally at odds with, with how he is defined and how he was defined that back in 93 and how he's been defined since. Um, because I wasn't writing it and they just went with what was obvious. So it's, you, you are always at the mercy of people that you don't understand, that don't know what you're thinking of or what you're planning, but who have control over or access to control over the character at that moment, at that time. You know, there might even be a way if we'd done, if Dracula were a more regular character in in the X canon, what would be the most unexpected thing of all to do with him? Well, I don't know, give him a suit of armor that would protect him from the sunlight, uh, reform him, much like Magneto, um, find a different way to, to turn him into a villain or a different reason to turn him into a villain or whatever. Um, 
have him become the new Doctor Strange, have the Doctor Strange have Doctor Strange become the new Dracula. There are an infinite number of questions. I guess alternate worlds provide an infinite, infinite opportunity to indulge them. The challenge is trying to do so with the core story and the core characters in ways that will have a lasting impact on the readership rather than this is just a what if Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Where, where you can still feel the stakes, uh, you know, yeah. in that investment where I think there is with with what ifs or, you know, lots of the alternate versions. It's kind of like, well, you know, that that character is can be interesting, but most likely isn't going to be as impactful as, you know, as, as you're saying, like that, that that through line of the core, you know, the, the main story, the world, uh, you know, in which the characters we know exist. Well, I mean, I guess the, the best paradigm cinematically would be into the spider-verse mm-hmm. which is a remarkably it's a really up until the last two the the marvel studios spider-man movies um it was one of the best of the, of the first batch i mean sam raimi's were really good but into the spider-verse was just like wow this is a really good comic <laughs> you know it's it because it just animation allowed you to do all of the cool powers things and the cool storytelling things without any of the practical challenges of doing it with live action characters, with real character, real people. Um, and it, it was a really great story. That's what you need to find, especially if you're going to do something with a character as well-known and as too often cliched as Dracula. How can you, how can you grab the reader by surprise and fake him out? Fake them out, I shouldn't say him. Now, because of uh, the Comics Code, it wouldn't have been possible to use Dracula uh, for a chunk of history of Marvel superhero comics uh, because, uh, you know, vampirism had been forbidden. And then they they started to do their black and white magazine versions where they were skirting around it with Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night. Uh, But but by, you know, this is 82. At that point, it had the restrictions had loosened enough that a character like Dracula could be there with the X-Men. Yes. Was it? Uh, in in pitching this story, or was there any pushback or any hesitancy to bring Dracula in, or was it just, uh, yeah, that that sounds like a fun one-off? Yeah, yeah, it's like a fun one-off. Mm-hmm. And also, by 1982, we were cementing our position as the best-selling book in in the industry, so it makes it a little, it makes it both harder and easier to pitch a slightly off the wall story. Uh, It's harder because no one wants to rock the boat. It's easier because even if it's a dud, we'll we'll make, as Archie Goodwin used to say, you've got 30 days to fix it (laughs) with the next issue. Um, did you see this as a, a chance to start exploring more of those supernatural? Because like I said, the, it was pretty soon we're going to be spending a little more time in Limbo. You're going to be doing uh, eventually the the whole Goblin Queen run and the X-Men are going to become a very different flavor than that more s- outer space sci-fi orientation they'd had before. The Goblin Queen, that whole arc, well, 
let's see, this is 150. This is 159. So it's the transition. We were buying time before Smitty t- took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think the very yeah. next issue is with Belasco and Limbo and introducing some of the demons there. Well, that, well, and also turning Ilyana mm-hmm. evil. <clears throat> yeah, we were in a, actually, we were in a very, making the transition from, from John to Dave, now from Dave to Paul. Yeah, we had to buy ourselves a couple of months. Um, sorry, I'm just, I am just sort of bouncing back in time. So, you know, that Dave was drawing the beginning of the Shi'ar arc, which then led into Paul taking over in 166. This amount of recall is impressive. (laughs) I just want you to know. Pathetic. (laughs) It used to be a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, it was was just, that's the other half of why you do something as weird as this. We had in motion a bunch of, what would have been what would be hard science fiction but horror because of the brood mm-hmm. stories down the line right those are going to be coming up in, in the this next would be, year or two in a way wetting the palette mm-hmm. we're doing we're doing horror we're doing um i think it goes back to what i said like a, a few minutes ago it's prompting the reader that you can't take anything for granted in this story, in this series. We can go anywhere. We can do anything. We are fighting Dracula this issue. Next issue, we're taking Scott down to to meet um, Gabby Forrester. Mm-hmm. But in the process, we're bringing him up against, um, with her father's suicide, um, established character. And I can't, it's probably why I can't remember it's playing with various perspectives, touching base with various characters, Scott being getting an issue all his own. Mm-hmm. And at its bedrock, I'm afraid, keeping the readers interested. You know, yeah. it's like I... anything, anything you can do, we can do better, mm-hmm. but trying to do it in a way that the keeps the readers a a keeps the readers on the edge of their seat and b perhaps attracts new readers who would never consider a superhero comic but like the idea that we're playing with fantasy we're playing with horror we're playing with um different different looks at storytelling i like that a lot with um because for an audience like genre expectations do matter like you you want to have a sense of i like that thing and and what it is and i think you know with with something like dracula he's so well known you're starting to kind of expand some of those borders of what genres you can expect with the x-men but in a way that they already know some of what it is going in (laughs) when you say dracula everyone knows what that's going to be and so it's not too jarring if you had just maybe introduced a new magical based villain out of nowhere then i'd say well why the x-men and magic you know it, it still works i think and starts to to expand the the story verse of of the x-men well it's also like why create something new when you've got a classic character right here the disadvantage being that the dracula who is right there was a is owned by a completely different consortium 
of which Marvel had access to at that time. But when we lost it a year or so later, that was that. Yeah, there's a few times where those licensed characters pop up in the X-Men and, and seem like they could become core things. And then then they kind of have to quietly yeah, go away. <laughs> that's reality mm-hmm. in publishing. I mean, that's, you know. Do you find those uh, those parameters that sometimes you have to work with, do they lead to, to you to like find creative storytelling techniques? Or is it a frustration when you have to uh, either include something that you've been asked to by an editor or stop using something because of out- forces completely outside of oh, you mean your like view? The, the two-part crossover in New Mutants with Team America? <laughs> yes. Or Rom the Space Knight shows up a couple times, right? And well, Yeah, I mean, that was, well, the whole point, with with dazzler was when we originally put it together um she was inspired visually by grace jones in the 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 last uh not sean connery but um who came after connery i i get i get them all mixed up (laughs) (laughs) for in in her bond movie Mm -hmm. with chris walken as a villain um she looked really cool so we thought okay that would make you know lots of white people teaming up in in comic book teams why not have uh another black woman but whereas storm is sort of aurora's classic and african this one could be totally contemporary totally uh harlem for want of a better word um totally contrasting to row to Aurora. Um, and that one on, I mean, we were, John Byrne Jr., who was drawing the book at the time, we were kicking ideas around. No, sorry. John Ramita Jr. John Ramita Jr. He wasn't, Byrne was. But then in the middle of it, what's her face from um, the Dudley Moore movie where she's jogging down the beach and he just like goes, oh my God, Bo, Bo Derek. The licensor fell in love with Bo Derek. They were going to make her the, the face of Dazzler. And so we adjusted accordingly. And Dazzler became a young, uh, cool blonde. With, but we were, still, we were still committed to the issues. So what we thought would be a really fun kind of story that introduced the X-Men to a milieu that they'd never seen before, urban black rap, um, went away. And it became uh, uh, disco hip hop. So, um, you know, going from 130th Street to uh, Bay Ridge, in a sense. And, it, you know, the, it's, you, you had a premise in mind and you were moving forward on that. And then because of editorial and, and other well, because uh, business interest, right, it, it yeah. gets, gets shifted. But that's, comics is a, a world of infinite adaptation. Mm-hmm. well thank you so much for taking the time to join us to talk about <laughs> storm and the x-men and dracula and uh writing comics i really do appreciate that now chris because the podcast is a celebration of great characters and great stories one thing that we always do is ask our guests if you could have a dinner party with any handful of fictional characters who would you want to hang out with for an evening well that's always a a dangerous question because when you're talking, especially to comic book writers, there's a differentiation between 
the characters that I create for stories that I've written for Marvel versus the characters that I've created for stories that I own myself. And in any analysis, bluntly, the characters that are mine are the characters that I've given my whole heart to because they're mine. Uh, no matter how much I adore Kurt or Aurora or Rachel or Phoenix or Dark Phoenix or Kitty or Gambit or Rogue or Mystique or Destiny, the list just goes on and on. They're all marvels. And so at any point, someone can invent a, a, a vampire storm or um, a uh, Night of the Living Dead storm. I mean, that's what always cracked me up about the comic book version of, of Night of the Living Dead is that you've got this disintegrated figure of Wolverine walking around with adamantium skeleton sticking out. And I'm sitting here thinking, you do realize he has a healing factor, right? So he's not dead. He's just, I mean, he's a perpetual food machine, perhaps food source for the vampire, for the zombies. But he's still, you know, he could be the ultimate adversary for the zombie apocalypse, but that's a whole different story. The point being that I know who, who my characters are or who the Marvel characters that I have written are, and I know where I would take them. Um, but that only applies to my stories exclusive of editorial intervention, which is a reality that, that every writer in mainstream has to realize doesn't exist. I mean, no matter how well I might write a Batman, that won't be the way it's done or won't be the way it lasts. No matter how well Frank Miller's Dark Knight imbues itself in the, in the consciousness of, of the world, someone will come along at some future date and change it completely or change the presentation, the comic presentation completely. Um, you know, Aurora married T'Challa, then they split apart. Now, apparently there's an, a sense or an implication or a wonder, maybe they should get try it again. Meanwhile, she's on Krakoa with everybody else doing whatever it is they're doing there. Who knows what the Marvel Universe will look like in five years? It's, it's continuously, continually in flux and continually evolving in ways that the writers on the books or on the characters at any specific time might have envisioned. Because we're all functionally irrelevant. The world, the characters that I defined are now getting on to 50 years old. I mean, my, my mistake with Aurora perhaps was that since it was the mid seventies, the early mid seventies, and no one had any faith that comic, the industry itself would be around for very long. I gave her a specific birthday, 1950. 
Well, that means now <laughs> she's 70. On one level, that would be cool. Seeing how Storm would be related, would be in the modern era as a mature person. But from comics as a visual trope, it's hard for a lot of artists to draw mature people. It's it's easier just to draw Reed Reed Richards as a young as a as a strapping twenty something with with silver hair. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's easier just to say we're gonna make Magneto back in the fifties again when he so he can you can just draw him as a normal person. So all for me, all of the cool stories and the cool visuals and the cool realities of the characters of the Marvel characters are in my head because that's where I have a measure of comfort and a measure of control and um, higher authority will leave them alone. (laughs) Um, So when you say who, again, never answer with one word when you can use a thousand. So as a, and, as a writer, when I ask, like, what characters would you want to hang out with? The answer is, I, I do hang out with them, right? Oh, no. I'm, I, that's when every time ever someone says, who are your, who's your favorite character in the X canon? My answer is, who's yours? Because I can't play favorites anymore. I've known them for 45 years. Thank you again for your time. And I do, you were mentioning some of your collaborators. I do just want to, uh, I don't think we gave Bill Sienkiewicz enough recognition as a phenomenal comic book artist. That's one of the great things about comic book medium that maybe doesn't always get recognized is how collaborative the storytelling really is and the the huge import that, you know, an artist sharing their vision with with a story can can just change the story for the reader so much. And Bill Sienkiewicz and your your collaborations are are very notable for uh, being able to, to kind of ex- expand what, what superhero art could look like. Well, just think of it, someone like Dave Cockrum and I, or Bill Sienkiewicz, or John Byrne, or John Romita, senior or junior, we can do in 20 pages what it will take Marvel Studios, a couple of hundred million dollars, lots of actors, at least two years to, to film and to post-production. And you sit in a movie theater for two and a half hours and you have a wonderful time, but that's it. Whereas you give me Salvador La Roca, you give me Bill Sienkiewicz, we can do it every month, knock your socks off, leave you gasping, and a month later we can do it again only better. Comics is as much fun as movies, is as creative as movies, far more so, and as interestingly true to life as movies. And if we want to, like Dracula, we can go in a different direction, just like that. And if it's great, we can keep going. And if the audience thinks, eh, maybe not, we can just reverse course and 30 days later come up with something even better but in a different direction comics deserves a lot more respect because comics in and of itself is totally cool i think that is 
a wonderful way to wrap up this episode. Thank you, <laughs> listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. And Kevin. Ah, nothing like a 20 minute pause. Um, Bill Mantlo from uh, Rob Space Night. Mm, right.